Lord, in the midst of worship, we long to see your glory. We long to see the beauty of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that these great worship songs have brought us into your presence and revealed to us, reminded us once again that you are a God who forgives and a God of great mercy. You're a God of holiness and love, a God who reigns, and a God who elicits our praise and adoration. Now we pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things, amazing truths from your scriptures so that our lives will be changed forever. And may we see Christ, in whose name we pray, amen, amen. Once President Calvin Coolidge had invited some people to the White House to dine with him. These were individuals from his own hometown. But they didn't know exactly how to behave and had not been instructed on the proper protocol. So they together decided that the best policy would simply be to imitate the president. Whatever he did, they would do. They sat down to eat and coffee was served. The president immediately poured his coffee into the saucer, not the cup. So they did the same thing. And then they watched him put cream and a little bit of sugar into the saucer and mix it. And so they, not knowing what else to do, did the same thing. Expecting him then to drink from the saucer, he then put the saucer on the floor for the cat. <laughs> and they were, of course, all caught in the act. Sometimes we imitate the wrong people and it ends up being embarrassing or worse. But whenever you imitate God, you are never embarrassed. We're told in Ephesians chapter 5, and I want to encourage you to open your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 5, we're told to be followers of God, or the actual word is mimic. The original word gives us our English word to mimic. And while mimic often in our own culture speaks of something that is often uh, done in a derogatory fashion to lampoon, uh, this idea of mimicking simply means to act like God acts, to think as he thinks, to speak as he speaks, to do what he does. We are to imitate God and we know there are some things we cannot do because God is God and we don't have the ability to mimic his omnipresence or omniscience or omnipotence but we can be forgiving like God and loving like God and that is what is in the text chapter 4 verse 32 said we are to be compassionate we are to be forgiving just as Christ and God forgave us we are to imitate God because we are his dearly loved children. And as children imitate their parents, sometimes they're not very good at listening to their parents, but they are very good at mimicking and imitating their parents, picking up ways to speak and uh, ways to act even unconsciously. Since we are dearly loved children, we should imitate our father imitate God and in what way live a life of love or walk in love 
Everything we do, the way we speak, the way we think, the way we act, is to be loving. And what does that mean? Well, the best example is Jesus. We are to live a life of love just as Jesus loved. And Jesus loved us by giving himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice, which in God's eyes, or to stay true to the image, in God's ability to smell, the fragrance was a sweet aroma, acceptable and pleasing to him. Love pleases God. And love always involves sacrifice, seeking to do what is best for the needs of a cherished object. So we are to walk in love. Now in this same context, Paul immediately says in verse 3, but among you there must not be even the hint of sexual immorality. So after discussing the pattern of love, he immediately warns about the perversion of love. And that's his focus in the next couple of verses. Love is a wonderful way to describe what it is to follow God. I love the words of Augustine, uh, who many years ago in preaching on 1 John chapter 4 made this statement, love and do what you will. It has been translated like this, love God and do whatever you please, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is so beloved. So love God and then do what is ever consistent with that love. But you and I often define love in a wrong way, so it is very precarious for us to say, love God and do whatever you want, because sometimes we have no idea what the definition of love is. What you must remember is that Paul is writing to a culture in Ephesus, a metropolitan city, as we would think of a Chicago or a Los Angeles or a New York, uh, an area in which there is, uh, there is much corruption, that the level of morality has a low norm. What is acceptable uh, certainly is not what could be called morality. For in the city of Ephesus, there is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world known as the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana, Diana of Ephesus. She was a fertility god. And involved in the worship of Diana was all kinds of sexual immorality, all kinds of sexual orgies involved in the actual worship service. And so the norm of sexual morality in Ephesus was extremely low. And Paul is talking about people who came out of that culture, came in faith to Christ, and they need to be reminded, or some of them told for the very first time, that what they used to do is no longer acceptable. Paul's argument has simply been this, we are no longer what we once were, therefore we cannot live like we once did. So love for God highlights the fact that there is a love perverted. And what does it look like? Verse 3, well, uh, there's immorality. Among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, literally, may it never be named among you. 
Not that you shouldn't be involved in it, that's a given, but let it not even be rumored or whispered that immorality is part of your life. Immorality or any kind of impurity or greed. Now it's interesting that immorality and greed are mentioned together. They come from the second half of the table of the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't be covetous. And yet the two here are joined together. Because the greed here most likely is the same context of sexual immorality, which means you covet someone's mate, you covet someone's wife, you covet someone's body so that you might selfishly satisfy your own desires. And that's the worst form of greed. By the way, the word for sexual immorality, there's just one Greek word behind the English sexual immorality. It is the Greek word, have you heard of it? Pornia. (laughs) Where we get the English word pornography. And so what is pornography? It is the sexual immorality uh, of, a, of a style, of a law, of a principle that is not from God. It is the debasing of that which God has created to be holy and good. And notice he says in verse 3 that this type of immorality and greed, these things are improper for God's Holy people, they're the antithesis of what you might call holy. It is impurity of all kinds and not reflecting the holy, gracious character of God. We are to walk in love because God is love. Remember that from 1 John chapter 4? God is love. Twice it says it, God is love. We love him because he first Loved us because he's the source. We are reflective, reflexive in our love. We respond, but he is the originator. God is holy, and we are not. We are born in sin, dead in trespasses, Ephesians, Ephesians 2 said. And so now that we have come to know Christ, we need to live like he does not like the Gentiles, going all the way back to chapter 4 and verse 17. No longer walk like the Gentiles walk with a darkened mind. This is improper for God's people. It's unfitting and should not even be named. He goes on to say in verse 4, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which is vulgarity, because these are out of place. Did you notice he mentions that twice? Inappropriate, out of place, unfitting, improper. These do not fit. They're not consistent. And what we've lost in our day and time is a sense of propriety. A sense of what is appropriate and fitting for those who name the name of God. 
I find it interesting that greed and immorality are connected together because that is exactly what is being surfaced in the popular Me Too movement, where so many women are acknowledging that they have been abused by greedy men who are led by selfish lusts, who want nothing more than to please themselves, and they don't care what they take or who they destroy to get it. What's not being acknowledged is that the rest of our culture has so lowered the bar of what is appropriate that it only encourages and fuels such a wicked, wicked mindset. And so the church is to be different. Shocker, huh? The church is to be different than the world. sad part about it is it's not always true. And so we shouldn't even talk about vulgarity or coarse joking. Isn't it interesting that a lot of our humor is so filthy and obscene and vulgar? I was listening to a program not too long ago in which Jerry Seinfeld, a well-noted comedian, said clean comedy is totally superior to every other kind. The rest is cheap, easy to get jokes with vulgarity. Clean comedy is totally superior. I'm not sure he always practices that, but that's the statement that is made. Isn't it sad when Christians are the ones joking about that which God has called blessed and dragging the subject into the mire of impurity and immorality in all kinds? It is totally inappropriate. What is appropriate, get this, is, last part of verse 4, thanksgiving. Now, you might find it odd that thanksgiving would be put in as the antidote and the remedy for lust and sexual immorality. But where's the logic here? Where's the sense? It is found here. That God is the author who has given us the gift of this wonderful physical relationship, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. And if we thank God for it, then we won't abuse it and use it on our own lusts. It's not that Christians are ashamed or afraid or dislike sex, that they're not to talk about it in such an obscene way. It's because they have such a high view of it. This is God's gift, beautiful as he gave it to be enjoyed. And so... Christians say, thank you, Lord, for your gracious gift. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and mercy. I think it's an amazing thing that God in his mercy gives us what we need, but often gives, us, gives it to us in a context which is enjoyable. Think of the food we eat. Wouldn't it be horrible if it was so bland, if it was just a pill? Take this pill once a day, that's all you need. But he gives us food to enjoy. So it's because of our high view that we will not debase nor degrade this subject with joking. 
with lust, to fill it on our own greed and passions. And then he gives us a word of warning. This is interesting. Let no one deceive you, he says. Well, verse 5, for, for you can be sure of this. No immoral, impure, or greedy person. Such a person is an idolater because they lust and long for the thing and they make that their God. A person or a thing becomes their God. They're an idolater just like those who are worshiping Diana. The lustful and the greedy are idolaters. Something else has become their God. Remember this, be sure of this. None of them will have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Not everyone is getting to heaven. Universalism is a lie. Because of these sins, the wrath of God is coming on the disobedient. And in the same context in, we talk, in which we talk about the love of God, verse 1, you have surfaced the wrath of God in verse 6. Behold the goodness and severity of God. God is both merciful and loving, and God is just and holy. Two sides of the same coin, two aspects of the same essence. And we are never to forget that. You say, Pastor, wait a minute. That word inheritance, I saw that before. Wasn't that in chapter 1? Yes, it was. Good, good catch. Verse 13. You are included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you were marked with him with the seal of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Your inheritance is guaranteed. And then in verse 18, he prays that your eyes will be open so that you might understand the riches of his glorious inheritance. And now we stand to lose the inheritance? How do we reconcile the two? There are those within visible Christianity who have never been redeemed. And their life declares that if they practice these things, not falling into it and repenting and getting out of it, but living in it and practicing these things, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. What a warning. And I'm sure the church at Ephesus had many people who were attracted to the things of God and the power of God and the love of God's people and the kindness shown in the assembly. They were attracted like flies to the fire. There they come, and in the midst of that situation, they think they're believers because they're in the group, but they've never been converted. So we need to take that warning to heart. And need to realize that Paul says not everyone is getting into the kingdom of God. Disobedience is the word that is used. Did you notice that? Used twice. Disobedience, verse 12. Disobedience, verse 7. The disobedient. That's what we were back in chapter 2. We were living in the spirit of the one who works 
in those who are disobedient. So while obedience does not earn our salvation, obedience becomes the mark of true salvation. Not perfect obedience, I'm thankful for that, but genuine, sincere, true obedience. So there are some real incentives here to live a godly life. You're no longer what you once were. So now begin to live a life of love. Don't be involved in immorality. That's out of place for those who call themselves the followers of a holy God. Don't be involved in immorality because that will cause you to be disqualified from the inheritance of Christ and God. And don't be immoral because such behavior merits the wrath of God. And living in a society like we do where we are bombarded with advertisements were bombarded with those who want to lure us in the devil uses everything he can to draw the church away from its pure and holy path we need to make sure that we're walking in love and we're walking in light but that's the second thing he mentions he says in verse 7, don't be partners with the immoral. I, I'm glad he didn't say don't associate, don't uh, connect, don't say hi, don't work with, don't be neighbors with. He doesn't say anything like that. He says don't enter into a partnership with them. That's a, a whole different involvement. But we need to be witnesses to them. Why? Verse 8, for once you were darkness too. But now you are light in the Lord, so live as children of the light. Walk in the light. Verse 1, walk in love. Verse 8, walk in the light. Is it not interesting that both of these express the essence of God? 1 John chapter 4, God is love. 1 John chapter 1, God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. If you say you have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, you are lying and you're not practicing the truth. Now, it's interesting to note that verse 8 says you once were darkness. It doesn't say you once merely were in darkness. That's true. It says you once were darkness. That was the core of your being. But now you are light. You're not just in the light. You are light. God has changed you from the inside out, and light is the core essence of your new spiritual being. When we trust Christ as Savior, we trust in the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The one who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it comes right from our being. Our essence is totally changed. We are light. Coming from light is, verse 9, the fruit of light. For the fruit of light, which is very similar to the fruit of the Spirit, consists in all that is good, all that is right, and all that is true. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. You could go to Galatians chapter 5 and add the fruit of the Spirit. 
which would be the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the goodness and the kindness and the faithfulness and the gentleness and the self-control. This is what light produces. And since we are in the light, we need to walk and produce the fruit of the light. But it doesn't stop there. When we walk in the light, not only does good fruit come out of us, but we expose what is in the darkness. Verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of light, is productive. The fruitless works and deeds of darkness is destructive. Have nothing to do with them. Verse 7, don't be partners with them but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. I'll remind you that Paul says, be infants, be babes when it comes to knowledge about sin. Be experts when it comes to having the knowledge of the truth. And when you live in the light, you will expose what is in the light because you shouldn't study the darkness You'll expose what's in the darkness when you are light. We shouldn't spend our time studying what is in the darkness. Some things that are in the darkness should not even be mentioned. But if you live in the light, the light will always expose the deeds of the darkness. By the way, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And that is true of you. You have a proclivity to the darkness that at times seems stronger than your love of the light. Even though you're a Christian, because you have within you still the remnants of darkness. That's why you've got to put it off. You're not passive spectators in this thing called sanctification. You have to become active, chipping off, putting away, weeding the deeds of darkness out of your life as you plant the seeds of the light and the seeds of the fruit of the Spirit. So we are unmasking what is around us that is dark. And that's why the world hates us. The world will not hate a church that never says this is right and this is wrong. This is light and this is dark. This pleases God and this displeases God. The world will never love a church that takes a stand like that. And the heat is intensifying in America today. So we have to make a decision. Do we walk in the light or do we compromise? Well, the question is, do you want to know God or not? He's in the light. And if you want to know him, You've got to walk in the light. And when you walk in the light, you expose the darkness. And when you expose the darkness, the darkness gets angry. But we're assured of this, that God will never leave us nor forsake us, and we need to continue to expose. We need to continue to live in the light. Because get this, the light also transforms. I had never seen this before, but this is amazing. Verse 13. Everything is exposed by the light or everything exposed by the light becomes visible right for it is the light that makes everything visible 
Now, you may not know this, but there are some portions of Scripture that are hard to understand. That's what Peter said about Paul's writings. And there are some areas of the Greek language that are harder to interpret than others. And good and godly scholars struggle over to know exactly how to put this particular verse into English. And this is one of them, this last phrase of verse 14. Or the first phrase, for light makes everything visible. The NIV of 1984 is what I just read to you. They have now changed that translation slightly to read, everything that is illuminated becomes light. The one says it is exposed by the light and becomes visible. The other says when it is exposed by the light, it becomes light. And this phrase has been used in other translations. Listen to this paraphrase from J.B. Phillips. It is possible, after all it happened to you Ephesians, for light to turn the thing it shines on into light. What does that mean? It means when I live the gospel, when I live under the power of the Spirit and for the glory of God, when I walk in the light, I not only expose what is wrong, I transform what is wrong. Because the light then is attractive, drawing people, and people see your good works and they glorify your Father in heaven. They see the difference and they're drawn to the light and when drawn to the light, they are transformed. For there were some of those who lived in Ephesus who burned their books from the occult and they got rid of their pornography and threw away their evil deeds and they embraced the light as it's found in Christ. And that is why you have this quotation, which is either taken from the book of Isaiah, which I think is perhaps uh, the best explanation, or it might be a portion of Scripture somewhat paraphrased into a common hymn. But verse 14 says, Awake up, O sleeper, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Isaiah 60, 1 and 2, let me read that. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. So here's the sense in which the darkness has been confronted by the light and Christ is shining and now a soul that was indeed sleeping, a soul that was indeed dead, now rises up in the light of Christ and is totally redeemed. Conversion is nothing less than waking up out of sleep, rising up from a state of deadness and being brought out of darkness into his marvelous light because we are no longer what we once were we should no longer do what we once did we are totally transformed now let me go back to the command that comes out of verse 8 for you were once darkness now you are light in the lord 
Live as children of the light. Skip over the parentheses and jump down to verse 10 and find out what pleases the Lord. There's the command. Live or walk as children of the light, verse 10, and find out what pleases the Lord. Spend your life finding out what puts a smile on the face of God. Now, in the context, it's walking in love, not in lust. It's walking in light, not in darkness. That's what pleases God. Pastor Doug is dealing with how to make decisions in the evening equippers. And it hinges on this same idea. How can I make a decision that will please God? What pleases God? You find that in the Word of God. You find that in the person of Jesus Christ. You find it in the Word of God, in the person of Christ, as you pray for the Spirit to illuminate your minds in the study of the Word. You find out the will of God by using the mind that God has given you that is saturated in the Scriptures that He has given you. Find out, renew in the spirit of your mind. You find out the will of God by talking to godly counselors and you find the will of God out by following the peace of God in your soul. That's last, following all the others, but vitally connected to it. Start living your life to find out what pleases God and then do it. Right? Walk in love. Walk in light. Why? Because God is love and God is light. And we've got to be different from this world. And as we shine as lights in a dark place, people will be drawn to Christ and they will be transformed by the grace of God. Many years ago in Africa, this was in the early 1900s, there was a sickness that became a devastating plague called the sleeping sickness. 100,000 died in a single area of Africa. The disease was caused by a parasite, and the parasite was put into a body by the bite of an insect, but the government didn't know this, and people didn't know it, and they would even let those insects land on them, those flies, and not even brush them off until they found out later that the bite of the insect, the fly, inserted the parasite into the body and thus the sleeping sickness. There was no pain caused with this sickness. You just became sleepy and drowsy. So some of us think perhaps we've been bitten by that fly too. <laughs> but the sad part about it is as you went to sleep and became more and more drowsy, the rest of the body began to sleep and organs ceased to function and death was inevitable. So what did the government do? They went into those infested areas, the areas where the flies would thrive, the environment in which they would breed, and they sprayed. They cut down the brush, they sprayed for insects, and then people began to knock off that fly whenever they would see one. And soon, health began to be found and the lack of the disease it began to be rare when we want to arise from the dead and no longer fall into a deep sleep of death 
We've got to let the light of Christ shine on us. But it's not just that. We've got to kill the environment where the flies of temptation draw us away and bite us and cause us to be infected with sin. In other words, we put off and we put on. Put off the darkness, put on the light. It's very simple. (laughs) It's just very hard to do. Let's pray. Lord, as I read through these verses and I'm reminded of how they fit our day and time to a T, I'm reminded how our culture is so given over to sexual immorality, and unfortunately there's more than a hint of it mentioned in the church itself today. Lord, help us to put off and to put on. Help us to walk in the light and have no fellowship with the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Nothing to do with it. Certainly no partnership with it. May our lives be lived in such a way that we show how destructive the darkness is and how wonderful the light of Christ is. And may our lives be lived in such a way that people will hear the message awake, rise from the dead, and Christ, who is life, will shine on you. Keep shining on us. May your light shine through us. You are the light of the world, and you told us that we are the light of the world. So fill us so that your light comes through unhindered. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.